My subject in this particular session is the apostles as evangelists demonstrating the biblical roots of election. Or to put it another way, the apostles as evangelists success explained by the biblical doctrine of election. Um, so what I want to do in plain language is to show that one of the primary motiva motivations for preaching the gospel and persevering in preaching the gospel was, in the apostles' mind, this doctrine of unconditional election, that is, that God had a people. Now, there is no doubt that the apostles were evangelists. They were commissioned by our Lord. We read that commission in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, when Jesus said, All authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Then just before Jesus ascended into heaven, that commission was repeated again in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. The commission is found in each of the Gospels. Mark 16, 15, preach the Gospel to every creature. Luke 24, verses 47 and 48, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in His name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. John chapter 20, verse 21. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. These men knew their marching orders. They obeyed and preached as with the power of the Spirit of God. Peter preached to thousands on the day of Pentecost. Together the twelve filled Jerusalem with their with their doctrine. Then there was another apostle, one who was born out of due season, as he calls himself. Paul, in a special way, was charged to preach the gospel just as the other apostles were. His ministry is legendary, and we are most familiar with his ministry because that is the emphasis in the book of Acts and, of course, the epistles he wrote to these missionary churches. And because he was the apostle of the Gentiles, the gospel has come to Barbados and the United States and all, all points west to Gentiles because Peter was the apostle to the Jews and it appears that the rest of the apostles ministered mainly to the Jews. We really don't know their history for certain, but we know that the gospel went west and it came to the Gentiles and we are the benefactors of that. Now, all of these apostles were conscious and knew the doctrine of God's sovereign election. In fact, after Peter preached to Cornelius and he reported back to Jerusalem, the saints there in Jerusalem said, Then God has also granted, that is granted, gifted, given to the Gentiles repentance to life. They understood that God is the one who grants repentance. God is the one who gives repentance. God is the one who has chosen the people. And it is God alone who can give salvation to those whom he has chosen. Now, as I said, my happy assignment is to preach a message about the apostles as evangelists demonstrating the biblical roots 
of election. Or to put it another way, the apostles as evangelists' success explained by the biblical doctrine of election. I want to do that uh, by using two texts. And the first text to which I direct your attention is the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. And the second text will be from the book of Acts, where the apostle Paul was actually preaching the gospel to the Corinthians. But 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, starting at verse 1, reading down through verse 6. Let's hear God's word. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now what I want to do in this message is to demonstrate for you in this passage that the apostles' message was in the power of the Holy Spirit. And to contrast it as the power of the Holy Spirit with the way that the orators in Corinth taught and, and, and gave their speeches, and how it was that Paul's message and the method of his preaching was contrary to the culture of Corinth, and yet how the Spirit of God blessed that message. So we'll look at this, uh, we'll, we'll look at this under uh, four important truths about Paul's ministry in Corinth. The first truth is this. I want you to see the simplicity of the messenger or the simplicity of the preacher in verse 1. Notice Paul says, I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. So he came with great simplicity as a preacher. He disdained the philosophical, oratorical approach that was commonly practiced among the Corinthians of his day. The point is, he wanted to preach and concentrate just on the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. He left behind all eloquence. Now, you know something about Paul, don't you? Was he an ignorant man? Was he a man without letters and learning? Was he a man without the ability to speak? Oh no. He was a man of learning. He had studied, he had studied under Gamaliel. And furthermore, he was a man of philosophy. You read little snippets here and there where he quotes philosophers of the day. He was well aware how to woo a crowd. He could do it. He had the ability to do it. He had the ability to draw people to himself by his speech. But the point that Paul is making is that he did not do that in Corinth, nor, I suggest to you, did he do it any place. He says, when I came to you, brothers, I, didn't, I, I, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He could use lofty speech. He had a lot of wisdom, but he determined that he was not going to do that. He refused to employ the very gifts which he had to preach the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is significant 
because those in Corinth believed that this kind of speech was essential to make an impact on the crowds. And the way they did it, the orators in Corinth, they manipulated people. They could make people laugh. They could make people cry. And just like the great dramatists of our day, when they put on plays, they can play with our emotions and they can do with us what they want. And we are happy to follow their drama and be entertained by it. Paul didn't do that. Now, would not Paul, determining only to preach with simplicity, would that not threaten the results of the gospel message? Would people think that he was somewhat uneducated, that he wasn't smart? Yeah, they might think that. The terms he uses here, he says, I came not proclaiming to you uh, the testimony uh, with lofty speech or wisdom. I, I didn't come using the kind of speech, or the word is logos. I was taught in Greek to pronounce it logos because that's the way my professor thought it should be done, but nobody agreed with it. But he came, he came not, not, using, not using that common oratorical skill of his day. What does this mean? Well, I'm going to give you some illustrations of lofty speech. Listen to this. This, is the, this isn't what they use in court. This is just examples of lofty speech to, to illustrate what Paul didn't do. Lofty speech can, can cover truth and make it sound good when it's really bad. Here's an example. The man committed terminological inexactitude and was economical with the truth. Now what is he saying? Let me read to you again. Can you figure out what he's saying? He's saying the man was a bold-faced liar. And Paul would have said he's a bold-faced liar. He wouldn't have talked about terminological inactitude and being economical with the truth. Now, that's a fancy way of speech. Here's another example of the kind of logos that existed in Corinth. It was a dark and stormy night. You've heard this before, I know. It was a dark and stormy night. The rain fell in torrents except at occasional intervals when it was checked by a violent gust of wind which swept up the streets. For it is in London that our scene lies. Rattling along the housetops and fiercely agitating the scanty flame of the lamps that struggled against the darkness. Now what are they saying? They're saying there was a big storm in London that almost put out all the lights. That's all they're saying. Well, you see, Paul could talk like that, but he says, no, I'm not going to preach like that. I'm not going to proclaim in lofty speech the gospel. He did not use the wisdom of the day, the lofty speech of the day. He left behind his superior wisdom in preaching the gospel, which some might say would um, hinder the message. But this shows something of the simplicity of the messenger, the simplicity of the preacher. This preacher is an evangelist who spoke simply and plainly. A second important truth that we see about Paul's ministry in Corinth, we see the single-mindedness mind of the preacher. In other words, he had a single topic, and he stuck to that single topic and kept hitting it over and over and over and over again. He explains this in verse 2 when he says, for I decided 
And notice the term, I decided. This was a conscious decision by the Apostle Paul. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What is this? To preach only Jesus Christ and Him crucified at Corinth. Well, when Paul went for, first went to Corinth, he did what he did in every city he went to. He first went to the synagogue. And, of course, they didn't receive his message, so he went next door to a school to preach. But when you go to the synagogue and preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified to the Jews, that is a stumbling block. It is not a message that immediately says, oh, wow, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard. No, it was exactly the opposite. Because every Jew knew that anyone who died on a tree, that is, was crucified on a cross, was, the, was someone who was cursed by God. And so immediately when they heard that this, their, the Messiah that, Jesus, that, that Paul was proclaiming died on a tree, they would say, this is ridiculous. We can't believe that. Because, because the Messiah can't be one who's accursed by God, as the Old Testament says, everyone who dies on a tree. So it was a stumbling block to the Jews. It was a message that was not naturally received by them. Ah, but you see, he turned to preach to the Gentiles. And what did the Gentiles think? Well, the Gentiles uh, had, um, had a quite... They, they had a problem too. Because anyone who was nailed to a cross, the idea that someone nailed to a cross could be their savior was foolishness to them. Because the cross was the means that the Roman Empire used to crucify criminals, murderers, and thieves. And violent jihadists, if you please. Now, I know they didn't have jihadists in those days. I understand that. But you get the point. Terrorists. That's what they did. They crucified people like that. And to say that a man who would be a known terrorist, a murderer, a thief, who murdered people while he was, while, while he was stealing, could be their savior, this was foolishness. But yet the Apostle Paul says, this is the message I preach. I preach Jesus Christ, and I preach Jesus Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Greeks. But he had a single-mindedness, one point that he kept emphasizing. It was the person of Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, living a sinless life, taken by his own people, and by the Romans, put on a cross and crucified. And of course, he would have preached the resurrection and the ascension and the rule of Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of the world. But he stuck to this one message. He was determined to know nothing else except the message of Jesus Christ. The point is this, that there was absolutely nothing in Paul's message that would appeal to the natural man, to either the Jew or to the Gentile. Just left to himself, the natural man would not receive it. Now there's a third important truth in Paul's ministry there in Corinth. And that is the weakness of the messenger. Not only did he, did he uh, not only was the messenger simplistic, not using the oratory of the day, not only did he have a message that was focused on the cross, which would have been foolish just to the Gentiles, and a stumbling block to the Jews, but Paul himself was weak. He presented himself as weak. Look at verse 3 of our text. 
And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And in much trembling, he says. What is this? Well, Paul isn't talking about physical weakness. I can't believe that Paul was a physically weak man. When we realize that he was beaten with 40 stripes minus one several times in a shipwreck, when he's put in prison, and in Philippi, for instance, and he and Silas were singing at midnight, he was not a physically weak man. When he walked from place to place, hundreds of miles to do that, physically he was strong. No, he's talking about a weakness that he took upon himself as he preached the gospel. Paul is saying, I did not come and preach the gospel with arrogance and self-confidence. You would have never found an arrogant preacher when you listened to the Apostle Paul. You would have found a man who believed the gospel. You would have found a man that you could understand was convinced of the truth of the gospel. But you would have found a man who was humble and had no confidence in himself, but his confidence rather rested in the power of the Holy Spirit. He was bold, but not arrogant. He was bold, but not flamboyant. He was weak in that sense. And you know, this has been true of all true preachers throughout history. Um, C.H. Spurgeon. Are you all familiar with C.H. Spurgeon? I'm assuming that you've heard that name. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the prince of preachers in England in the 1800s. And you remember that Charles Spurgeon at 16 was converted and began to preach the gospel shortly after, thereafter. Pastored a little church in Water Beach in England and was soon called to a candidate at, a, at New Park Street Chapel in, in London. He went to London and he was amazed as he showed his uh, letter of invitation to the deacons. They said, we're not surprised. He went to London and preached and they called him to preach. And within a few short months, that chapel, which had been decimated, which would hold hundreds of people, I think it held, what, 500 people, something like that, was packed full. And so they had to find other places for him to preach. And they could not, here's a 19-year-old young lad, they could not find a building large enough to, to hold all the people who wanted to come in here and preach. Thousands would come to hear him. And thousands would be waiting outside to hear him. He was a very gifted man. But I want you to listen to what Spurgeon says about himself and his own lack of self-confidence. You'll find this in his lectures to the students in a chapter entitled The Minister's Fainting Fits. He says, Before any great achievement, some measure of, this, of the same depression is very usual. He's talking about a darkness of the soul, a depression, a lack of confidence, and I'm not I'm uncertain about himself. He goes on later in this paragraph to say, Such was my experience when I first became a pastor in London. My success appalled me. Now think about that. Thousands coming to listen to him. Thousands couldn't even get into the Surrey Gardens, which held, as I recall, some 20,000 people. They couldn't get in there to listen to this young man preach. And he says, my success appalled me. Now, there are radio evangelists and TV evangelists today who would not be appalled at that. They would be saying, look at all the people that want to hear me. They'd be promoting themselves, but not a true preacher. 
He says, my success appalled me. And the thought of the career which seemed to open up so far from elating me, cast me into the lowest depth out of which I uttered my misery and found no room for Gloria in excelsis. Who was I that I should continue to lead so great a multitude? I would betake me uh, to my village obscurity or immigrate to America, as though that would be a place where you could hide and find a solitary nest in the backwoods where I might be sufficient for the things which would be demanded of me. It was just then that the curtain was rising upon my life work and I dreaded that it might, what it might reveal. I hope I was not faithless, but I was timorous and filled with a sense of my own unfitness. I dreaded the work which a gracious providence had prepared for me. I felt myself a mere child and trembled as I heard the voice which said, Arise and thresh the mountains and make them as chaff. This depression comes over me whenever the Lord is preparing a large blessing for my ministry. The cloud is black before it breaks and overshadows before it yields its deluge of mercy. Now, here's the Prince of Preachers. An order par excellence who was used by God to bring thousands to the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. And he had the same testimony as the Apostle Paul, who said, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. His, Spurgeon said his stomach would churn every time he ascended to that pulpit to preach the gospel. I read one biographer who said he actually vomited often when he was headed up to the pulpit. So, here is Paul. Preaching the simplicity of the gospel, not using the oratorical skills that he could have that was common in Corinth, and doing so in weakness, great, great weakness. Now, a fourth truth I want you to see about Apostle's ministry in Corinth is the powerful help that was given to this preacher in verse 4. But he says, in demonstration of the Spirit and power. Oh, you see. Oh, you see, dear friends, it wasn't Paul. It wasn't his great oratory. It wasn't that his message appealed to the masses. It didn't. It was not that he was a strong man who was confident in himself and could, as it were, uh, exude that confidence to the multitudes. No, no, no. It was something else. It was the power of the Spirit of God upon his life and upon his ministry. And that accounts for the success of the ministry in Corinth and in every other place where he won. And that's what we need today. We need men who are filled with the Spirit of God, who are anointed by the Spirit of God, who preach in the power of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God resting upon them and the gospel going forth from their lips to reach the multitudes. Oh, how I long for that as a preacher. And how we long for it as we speak to our friends and neighbors about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The powerful help that's given to the messenger. We must pray. We must pray for the Holy Spirit. And we must depend upon the Holy Spirit for any good that is to come from our efforts in evangelism. Well, there's a fifth truth that I want you to point, that I point out about Paul's ministry. Not only was 
the, the simplicity of the messenger in his speech, not only was it a single-minded message, not only did the messenger have weakness, not only did he have the power of the Spirit, but I want you to notice the motivation of the preacher in verse 5. Here is his motivation. I did this, he says, because that your faith, for this reason, in order that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In other words, he says, I, I came to you with this message, which I knew the natural man wouldn't like. I came to you in weakness. I came to you in simplicity. But in the power of the Spirit, because I wanted above all else for you to have a true faith that your faith might stand not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That was my desire above everything else, to see the faith of Jesus Christ in you. Faith resting upon the power of God. Now, why was it that Paul's message was so effective? He said, well, you just told us. Ah, but I haven't told you everything. There's something else I need to tell you. I want you to turn back with me to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 18, and verses 9 and 10. You see, chapter uh, Acts 18 is the account of Paul's ministry in Corinth from the historical perspective. When he left Athens, he went to Corinth. And in verse 5, Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia. And they were testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. But as is was common in verse 6, they opposed, that is, the Jews opposed and reviled him. So he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. I always smile when I read that verse. I think of, uh, of the Jews going to the synagogue, having to pa pass the house where Paul was preaching. He didn't have a loudspeaker, but I guess they probably heard him at least. And it just wild them to no end that Paul was still preaching. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed the Lord. So now you really got problems amongst the Jews, don't you? Together with his entire household and many of the Corinthians having... And hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And then look at verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Now, this is a very, very instructive historical perspective and revelation, a direct revelation that the Lord gave to the Apostle Paul in his ministry in Corinth. It was the doctrine of election which allowed Paul to continue on faithfully preaching the gospel in Corinth. He was already preaching as he described in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. But now he must continue on because the Lord says, I have a lot of people in this city have a lot of people in this city. Which was fuel for Paul's, for Paul's ministry. When he was preaching and when he was testifying of Christ, 
he knew that there were going to be a lot more Corinthians that came to faith in Christ because the Lord told him, I've got a lot of people here. And Paul, believing, as we know he did because he taught it, the doctrine of unconditional election, he knew, he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that his ministry was going to be successful. He didn't have to change his methodology. He didn't have to change his message. He could just keep proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And notice it is the Lord Himself. The source of this encouragement came from the Lord Himself. It is the Lord who said to the Apostle Paul, I have a lot of people in this, in this city. The doctrine of election has its source in the Lord. Not in Paul. Paul simply learned it from the Lord. This is not a doctrine for men to argue about. It is rather a doctrine to embrace because it's a divine doctrine and it is a doctrine that guarantees that God will save a people. He has His people and He is going to save them. Now, has the Lord spoken to you and said, I have a lot of people in Barbados who are going to be saved? No, He has not. He has not come to you in a vision and told you that. Ah, but let's be careful when I say He hasn't. Because there is a principle to elicit from this direct revelation that was given to the Apostle Paul. And that is, when God sends believers, when God sends a preacher to a place, He is going to bless that preaching with the conversion of sinners. He doesn't send a preacher to a place where He has no elect. And remember, that the command of the gospel is to preach the gospel to every creature, to every tribe, nation, language, and tongue. And that means that God has a people in every tribe, in every nation, in every language. So wherever the gospel goes, there is a people. And those people will be saved. And so we can take comfort from this promise that was given to Paul by the Lord when he said, keep going, Paul, because there's a lot of people that are going to be saved. And another observation I make about this is, this, is that, that, this, that this, this is accompanied with a great promise. Notice what the Lord says to Paul, verse 10, for I am with you. And no one will attack you. Now, sometimes God's people are attacked. I mean, let's face it, they are. But on this particular occasion, the Lord says, I'm going to preserve you, I'm going to protect you. And no, But the point is this, I am with you. And listen, dear friends, the Lord is with us by the presence of His Spirit. The Lord is with us by His promises that He gives to us. And so we can embrace that promise. God has a people where He puts a preacher. And God says to the preacher and to all the people who have come to faith under the ministry of that preacher, I'm with you. I'm with you. And nothing, here's the principle, nothing can hinder the spread of the Gospel. 
though men may persecute you greatly. So the servants of the Lord are never alone. And then there is, of course, the promised results of this encouragement. The promised results. He says, I have a lot of people. I have elected a people. And they indeed will be saved. Now we don't know who the people are. I don't know who the people are in this neighborhood that God has chosen. Nor do you. But he's chosen some. I'm confident of that. They just aren't here yet tonight. Next year maybe they will be. You see. God has a people in, 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 in these cities here. In this part of the island. And in other cities of the island. He has a people here. Because he's raising up preachers to preach the gospel. And so we may have that confidence. You see, the apostles preached boldly the gospel, and they did so in a way, and in, in a way that did not appeal to the natural man, but was with the power of the Holy Spirit that led to the conversion of many, many Corinthians. And they did come to believe on Christ. So take encouragement, dear friends, with the doctrine of unconditional election. It means that there's going to be a lot of people saved in Barbados, sooner or later.